If you want to turn to Daniel in the Old Testament, we uh, just finished Ezekiel. Some pretty strange things there. Uh, and I think we got as far as chapter 23 or something, but the rest pretty much just keeps repeating over and over again. As he speaks of doom and gloom to all these people. Now we get to Daniel. Daniel, first chapter, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, 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 whatever, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, there were two besiegings of Jerusalem. This is the first one. Nebuchadnezzar comes in, he kicks butt, he raids the treasury of the house of God, the gold and whatever, and goes back to Babylon and uh, takes some people with him, which is what we're going to see. Daniel was part of the first wave of people taken into captivity. Then Nebuchadnezzar comes back the second time and just kills them all, almost all of them. Very few survived. The remnant were taken into captivity uh, it was there's all these prophecies of doom and gloom that we've been going through. All of this has to do with this time that Nebuchadnezzar. There's a lot of the part of the Bible, all those prophets and stuff. It's all talking and warning the children of Israel. You better stop it, or I am going to come in and kick some serious butt. They, as we know, did not listen. And after hundreds of years of putting up with this, the good news is it certainly shows you that God is patient. I know a lot of us struggle with things in life. The good news is God is patient. All right? It took him hundreds of years before he couldn't take it anymore from these people. And wiped out the majority of them. A small remnant. The rest of them went into captivity. They were there for like 70 years before they came back. And God restored them. And the Messiah came. And and on and on we go. So, but now, so Daniel is part of this first wave that comes in. So, Verse 2, and the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, uh, along with some of the articles of the temple of God, and he carried, these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia, and put in the treasure's house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpeznez, uh, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility. So this, this first bunch of people that he took into captivity, what he was doing was he came in, you know, tried to teach them a lesson, which the Israelites did not listen because they provoked him again, and that's when he came back and just crushed them. Of course, this was all to fulfill prophecy that God had warned them, so God's hand was in all of this, but from a just geopolitical viewpoint, these guys were idiots. Babylon comes in, just smashes them to jerk the snack out of them and go back and they kept egging him, and then he came back and crushed him, okay? But this first time, he comes in, he teaches them a lesson, he takes the gold, as much gold as he wants, takes it back and puts it into his God's temple. And then he says, now, not only did he come to get the gold, the best of the best of the uh, uh, physical possessions of the land, he also wanted to take the best of the best of the young men of the land. So he basically tells this guy, listen, I want you to find the sharpest, best looking, 
best educated people. Most of them came from noble families. And bring them with you. Because he wanted to take advantage of not only the gold, but of the intellectual and, and, and uh, other assets of the nation. So we see in verse 4, he says, I want young men without any physical defect, handsome. These boys had to be good looking. All right? I probably would have been left behind. But he took all the really good looking guys. And those showing aptitude for every kind of learning. Smart people. I want them, I want them good looking. They can't even have blemishes, man. I mean, this guy's good looking, really smart. It's like a chick looking for a husband here. Uh, well informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. And he was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. Well, the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. Now, this is the best of the best. And he's basically treating them like one would treat you know, wild stallions. I mean, the best of the best. These these animals were pampered and taken care of and stuff because of they're the best it could be. So when he brought these guys, this wasn't for punishment, although it was certainly punishment from their viewpoint because they were dragged away from their families. But he's looking for the best looking, smartest, most talented men, young men, brings them and then he wants them to take really good care of them. You feed them the best, take care of the best. Uh, and they were to be trained for three years. So in that three-year time, they were, to, they were to learn the language of the Babylonians. They were to learn to, the history of the culture so they could be assimilated and they could take advantage of their skills. After that, they were to enter the king's service. Now, among these good-looking young Hochimama boys was Daniel, who is telling us the story that the book is named after. Then uh, three other guys are mentioned, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Well, the chief official gave them new names. Those were Jewish names. You're in Babylon now. So he changes Daniel's name to Belshazzar. And to the other three guys, he gives them the name, names Meshach, or, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And uh, those will be names that will come up again as we read the uh, story of the, the three because we're always told the story of the three Hebrew children that were thrown into the fire. These weren't children. These were young, sharp, intelligent men. All right? We always say they're little children. They weren't children. They were men. So anyway, so he brings these guys and gives them new names. Uh, now Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Now why is this? Because they are Jews. Jewish diet is extremely strict. To the point of just burdensome. Uh, things were either kosher or they were not kosher. Uh, very uh, strict Hasidic Jews still live by this. Even if food is cooked on a grill that isn't handled properly. is not considered kosher. You cannot eat it. So they were turned, it, how the food was handled was important. What they ate was major important. Of course they're in Babylonia now. They, Babylon doesn't care. So they cook the food any way they want and serve them things that were forbidden for them to take. So Daniel resolved, I'm not going to do this. So he asks the chief official for permission not to eat the food. Not to, as he says, defile, defile himself in this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy for Daniel. So the guy liked Daniel. God had blessed him with favor from this guy he had to talk to. But the official told Daniel, he says, look, I am afraid of my lord the king. 
And as we will see, he had good reason to be afraid. Nebuchadnezzar was a serious nut job. People say, I'm hard to work for. I mean, this guy, <laughs> this guy was like, holy stinking cow, which we will see here. Ego, unbelievable demands, and he would just freely kill people. So I'm afraid of my Lord the King. I bet he was. Because he's assigned you food. He assigned you your food and drink. I'm supposed to give you the best. They were basically the studs of the land that they brought back. I need to take good care of you. You need to be healthy. If he sees you looking worse than the other men of your age, basically, the king will have my head for this. He's going to cut my head off if he finds out that I wasn't giving you the best of the best and you would be healthy. So then Daniel says to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Ananiah, Mishael, and Ezariah, listen, just give it a test. Ten days. Give us ten days. Give us nothing to eat except vegetables and water because that was safe. Apparently there weren't any prohibitions on vegetables. It mostly had to do with certain meats and stuff like that. So just water to drink, just vegetables. And then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food, all the really good stuff. And treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to do this, and he tested them for 10 days. You know, I probably can handle this in 10, because if in 10 days they're looking worse, deal's off. I'm not going to lose my head because you have an eating problem. Well, at the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and let them have their vegetables instead. Now this is referred to as Daniel's fast or or whatever, the, the, the meals, the diet of Daniel. Now, I've listened to people. Now, I'm, I'm certainly not a uh, nutritionist, as you all can well see. Uh, you know, so you know, I'm not going to get into big fights about what you can or cannot eat. I, people will argue that, see, this proves that just being a vegetarian is better than being eating meat, see. Or it's better to eat this because if you eat, if you eat God's way, then you'll live long. Ah, 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 hold on a second. This is recorded because this was a miracle. To argue that it is more godly and more righteous and holy and more pleasing to the Lord for you to only eat vegetables and drink water because of the results here would mean that when you go on a cruise, you should jump off the side because you can walk on water. Right? It's the same thinking, for heaven's sakes. It was a miracle. When you're on a cruise, do yourself a favor, don't jump over the side. Okay? You cannot walk on water unless you have incredible faith, and which I would like to come and see. Alright, so. And people pretty much who do this diet, do it as a diet, and they lose a lot of weight. Which would not hurt me in the least. Okay, or some of you, so don't look, all right? (laughs) Having said that, these boys were not losing weight, okay? If they would have been losing weight, as everybody who goes on this diet does, 
they would have jerked their chains and they couldn't have the diet anymore. The miracle is, or was, that they were on this restricted diet that should have caused them to lose weight. Instead, they got chunkier than the other boys. All right? That was the miracle. Now, you want to do the Daniel diet? Knock yourself out. I should do it with you. I know. Okay? But this is not a more holy way to eat. It is just a miracle. I believe my point is clear. All right. Now, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. So they're going to school and they're learning. They, when it says God gave it to them, they weren't sitting there just praying and got this by the Holy Spirit. I know people who over-spiritualize everything. You have to remember, anything that these guys had, they always attributed to God. Good and bad in the Old Testament. They had a very strange filter. Certainly from a New Testament viewpoint, we understand all good things do come from God. Just because bad things happen to you doesn't mean it's necessarily coming from God. Okay? So when he says God gave them all this knowledge and understanding, he blessed them and gave them favor, but they went to the school. That was their job. They were there. They were doing the thing. They were studying. They were doing it, and they were doing fabulously. And Daniel showed unusual ability and that he could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Now, I don't know how one discovers this. Uh, I don't know how many people have dreams and visions that other people come and interpret and stuff like that. You know, I don't know. I certainly, the only dreams I have is when I eat too late. But, uh, the, you know, so, but so anyway, this was a, a, a skill that he had and it was acknowledged as such. And it put him and his buddies in the category of the magicians and astrologists and sorcerers and stuff. I don't know why, it just did. Gets them in trouble in a second, you'll see. But uh, they were considered as part of these people who had the ability to see things that others could not see. All right, so now at the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, which was three years, they had to learn all the stuff in three years, major college crashing course here. And I'm pretty sure all they did was study. They weren't partying and drinking beer. They studied from day to night and had no vacations. So in three years, these guys had a major education, the best in the world at that time. So it brings them in. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So he's impressed. These guys are sharp. Good looking and sharp. All right? So they enter the king's service. So he picks the best of the best. They had their American idol and the judges picked them. And these guys got to come in and now they are part of these seers, if you will. S-E-E-R-S. Now in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times sharper than all the magicians and enchanters in his, own, in his whole kingdom. You say, well, they weren't magicians and enchanters. No, not really, but they were basically put in that category. These were considered the wise men, these guys. And they assumed their wisdom came as a result of enchantments. And, but of course it was God's blessing. And they're just really sharp guys, okay? So Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, in the second year of his reign, going back to Nebuchadnezzar here, just don't know how long Daniel was there. A little parenthetical statement. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. And when they came in and stood before the king, he said, Listen, I have 
had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Now, this isn't really hitting it clearly. We're going to see it in just a minute. Here's what he's saying. I had a dream. It really bothered me. I can't remember what it was. But I want you to tell me what it was and, and, and what it means. Whoa. That's one thing to say, here's what I dreamed. What does it mean? Then they can say, well, it means blah, 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 blah. He says, look, I had this dream. I don't even know what it was, but it's really bugging me. Again, it rises us a little. Okay. So the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. They're always, you know, kissing his, you know, whatever. So, O king, live forever. You're fabulous. We love you. You're great. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. And the king replied to the astrologers, well, this is what I have firmly decided. What? If you can't tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. You think I'm hard to work for? For heaven's sakes, this guy is out of control. I want to know what it means. I had a dream. What was it? I don't know. I can't remember. Tell me what it was. Okay. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, I'll go the other way. You will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So here's your choice. Gifts and rewards and great honor or cut into pieces. <laughs> hmm. I wonder which one I'd like. So once more they replied, well, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. And the king answered, I am certain that you are just stalling. You're just trying to gain time. Because you realize that this is what I've already firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there's just one penalty for you. <laughs> you will be slashed into pieces. You have all conspired to lead me. Tell me misleading and wicked things. A little on the paranoid side, would you not say? So now, because they can't tell him what he dreamed, he's assuming they're all conspiring against him. The boy has issues. Hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream, and I'll let you know that you can interpret it for me. Well, the astrologers answered the king, there is not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. Don't just kill these guys. Kill them all. Anybody who falls into this category. <laughs> now, this is the category that Daniel and his three buddies fell into. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death. And men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends and to put them to death. Well, when Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon... Daniel spoke to him with wisdom intact, I'll bet. <laughs> and he said, why are you doing this? 
<laughs> what did we do? Why did the king issue such a harsh decree? And Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. And basically said, the king's ticked off. He's having a hissy fit. And he wants everybody dead. Because they can't tell him his dream, which is bugging him. How it can be bugging him when he can't remember what it is, I don't know. The man had issues. Then Daniel, at this, at this, Daniel went to the king and asked for time that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he urged them to pray. <laughs> because they're all about to get killed. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. So that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Please pray. My guess is upon hearing the potential penalty, they were highly motivated to pray. Well, during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, and then here's a little recording of the song of praise that he cries out to God. Praise be to the name of our God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. And you have made known to us the dream of the king. So he praises God. Somehow, doink, he knows what the king dreamt. Well, then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute them, and said to him, uh, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king. I will interpret his dream for him. Well, Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dreams means. Now, I would think all the wise men were really glad that someone could tell the king something. Well, the king asked Daniel, also called Belshazzar, he wasn't calling him Daniel, Belshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel said, no, wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven. It's a great way of him just turning glory to God. Now, so this isn't about me. I can't do anything. But there's a God in heaven to whom nothing is impossible. Isn't that great? There's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. As you are lying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come. And the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me... This mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than other living men. Again, being humble. This isn't about how great I am, but so that you, O king, may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold. Its chest and arms were made of silver. Its belly and thighs were made of bronze. Its legs of iron and its feet 
part iron, part baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. And it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze and the silver and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. Certainly, in a worldly sense, Jesus is the true king of kings. But The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your, and by the way, it's a very biblical concept. You know, it's, it's kind of hard to wrestle with sometimes, but the, the Bible really says that all power comes from God. So what about wicked people? These wicked rulers. The Bible even implies fairly strongly that these guys are there for a reason. I know it's kind of creepy to think of. You know, even some horrible despots and even some people who don't like various presidents from time to time. I get it. We get to wrestle these issues out. But at some point, the Bible says you need to show them respect. They're there because God wanted them there. You know, despite we think we have everything in the hands of men. Uh, and even this king, who was a self-centered, narcissistic, psycho nut job, he says, God has given you all this power. Very uh, uh, re reiterated over and over again in the Old and New Testament. Hard to explain it all, but... What do I know? Anyway, you, O king, king of kings, God has given you all the power, da, da, da. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. After you, another kingdom will rise inferior to you. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, bronze will rule over the whole earth. And finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things into pieces, so it will crush and break all things. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly made of clay, baked clay, partly of iron. So this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be strong, partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to other people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands, the rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and everything to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. Okay, now let's look at the dream and, uh, and the interpretation. So he clearly tells us that this is a dream of the future that is going to come. Four major kingdoms, empires that will rule the earth are going to come. Now, Bible scholars debate who these kingdoms are. Let's take a look at some of the versions. Uh, everybody agrees because he tells us the first one is the Babylonian Empire. That's the head of gold. 
The next one, almost everybody agrees on uh, at some level, is the the Persian Empire, the Medes and Persians. Um, Not as great as the first one, as Daniel said, but still a very powerful force to deal with. Uh, Then many believe that the Greek Empire, which was a massive empire, was the third empire. And then finally the fourth one would have been the Roman Empire. The one that is really of the greatest interest is... uh, the uh, the Roman Empire one now, and I explain that in just a minute. The uh, uh, other versions say, well, no, it was the Babylonians and then the Medes and then the Persians, not the Medo-Persian Empire, although it was the Medo-Persian. It's just one of the arguments that I read, uh, and then uh, the Romans. You know, uh, that's uh, how it worked out. Uh, and then another version that a lot of uh, People view it as the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Romans, and then that which is yet to come, which is going to be the great kingdom on the earth, empire, if you will, that is going to be run by the Antichrist. Uh, So, who knows? I don't know. And neither do you. So. But it's not one of these things to fight over. Christians fight over the stupidest things on earth. But this, you know, you get all these people, last day people all arguing about this nonsense. I don't know. Here's the important thing. Because why the fourth one is so important. Because it says when the fourth one comes, then this rock cut from the mountain, not with human hands, clearly a picture of Christ who will smash and destroy the last kingdom. And then... All of the others will be wiped away, and his kingdom will never end. So the two strongest interpretations would be the one that ends with the Romans and the one that ends with the Antichrist. The one with the Romans, one could argue, was the fourth major empire in the earth. And it talks about uh, the mixture of iron and clay. It'll be a mixture of all kinds of different peoples, which was true of the Roman Empire and in fact, Christianity, virtually every historian concedes that the Roman Empire was brought to its knees by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that it's been the gospel of Christ ever since that is the lasting empire. Certainly it makes sense to me. I have no problem with that interpretation. Or if that wasn't it, and then he's talking about finally breaking the last empire of the Antichrist, and then Jesus comes. Either one works for me, you know, so I don't know. Uh, I don't know what it's certainly anything to argue about. It is rather impressive from a uh, biblical standpoint, historical standpoint, that Daniel could see these four major empires. It's very impressive to historians that he could see this because because they don't look at the Antichrist when they look at the, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. To have someone come along and say there are going to be these major, four major empires in the world before the kingdom of God, you know, which would be considered Christianity... Very impressive that someone would see that, you know. So, anyway, there you have it. Beats me. Anyway, so Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar this. Of course, all of a sudden, boom, it makes sense to Nebuchadnezzar. In, in verse 46, then King Nebi falls prostrate before Daniel and pays him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. And the king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. And a revealer of mysteries. For you were able to reveal this mystery. This does not mean he converted to Judaism. 
It's just he's acknowledging this God to be the, the biggest God out there. Which, in one sense, didn't really mean anything to these guys because there's so many gods. Man, you have all the gods. Yours is the best. Fabulous. We love it. But they didn't stop all the other gods. You know what I'm saying? That's what he's basically saying. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position, lavished many gifts on him. Life is good for Daniel. Everything's groovy. It's fabulous. And he made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. So now he's the head wise guy. All right? Like the mafia. Anyway, moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now they're using that name. Get away from the other names. Uh, administrators over the province of Babylon. So they're now administrators. Daniel is the head wise guy. These are the mini, mini wise guys, the mini-me's. And they're all, they're, they've all made this big yo mama, you know, rise in the empire. Life is good. Okay, this is great. And while Daniel himself remained at the royal court as, as the main guy. All right. How are we doing for time? We go a little bit further. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar, chapter 3, to show you that this, there was no big conversion here. The first thing we read next is that life is good, everything's great. These guys are raising a great power. Dan, you know, the king said, man, you got the best God around. It's very cool. Well, the first thing he goes now in the next chapter is, is the king goes and makes a new God. So the king Nebuchadnezzar makes an image of gold. And this is a big, honking, stinking image. It's 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. It is made of gold. These people had a lot of gold, I got to tell you. I'd like just a couple of ounces, if you didn't mind. But this guy, it's just big, honking, gigantic, 90 foot high statue made of gold. And then he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So he made a big deal of it. Then he summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials. I expect you to have that all memorized by next Wednesday. Assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed. This is what you are commanded to do. O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the band start to boogie. The horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre. The harps, the pipes, and all kinds of music. When you hear the band strike it up, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. This is the new proclamation. So they're basically, it doesn't say when it happens, it just says Whenever it happens. You know, this is like the biggest game of musical chairs that you've ever seen. Everybody's going along, and as soon as the band kicks in, everybody's got to stop, bow down, and go, Yo, idol, oh, we love you, idol, sack it to me, idol. So they're worshiping the stupid idol. The band stops, you can get up and go your way. But whenever the band plays, we got to get down and worship the idol. Or be thrown into a blazing furnace. A normal person would think, I'll just bow down. 
I don't want to be thrown into a blazing furnace. All right, so, therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of horn, flute, zither, whatever that is, sounds like a snake, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations of men of every language fell down. I think so. We'd have a lot more people in church if we threatened to kill them if they didn't come. (laughs) Now, at this time, some of the astrologers who were also the wise men, these were the, they were in this category of these seers that Daniel and his buddies were like the, the head honchos over, and whom by his actions David had saved their lives. You would think these people would be greatly appreciative of what had transpired. No, they were not. It's just human nature. Whoever's got power, other people want the power. And so these guys are in a place of power. And some of these guys came forward and denounced the Jews. And they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, they went and squealed on him. A bunch of tattletales. Oh, King, live forever. You know, you have to say that to Nebuchadnezzar, it'll kill you. You have issued a decree, oh, King, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. Of course, the king said, well, yes, of course. That's a very, very good proclamation. Brilliant, brilliant. But, said, but there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. So now remember, Daniel is the yo mama guy. He's the big guy. He's hanging back at the palace. Nobody squeals on him. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who also have power under Daniel. Go out and run everything. So they squeal on those guys. Well, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound, why they got to repeat this hard time, I don't know. It's the fifth time now. When you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, harps, pipes, and all kinds of music. Uh, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image of gold I've made. Very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. In other words, he basically... Let me make this clear for you boys. The band strikes up. You worship. Or you're toast. Literally. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king. Now this, this takes cojones. I got to tell you. These guys, they knew who they were. They knew what they believed. And they were not fearful even unto death. And they replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. I think I would have gone into the defense mode first. (laughs) 
listen, honestly, we're Jews. We can't do this. This is against our religion. You know, that's why. Nothing disrespectful. Honestly, I would have gone, I would have went through all kinds of stuff to explain. No disrespect. You know, that's, that's why we can't do this. But these guys said, look, we, we don't. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. We don't have to explain ourselves. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. Yeah! And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. Yeah! And then verse 18. But even if he does not. See, we like the yeah, we're not going to fry. We like the yeah, we're going to have a miracle. We're going to get out of this. Woo! But even if he doesn't, that's not so popular. But these guys say, but even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your God or worship the image of gold you have set up. (laughs) Now, this is Nebuchadnezzar, okay? This guy is a nut job. Extraordinaire. This guy has some serious mommy issues, all right? There's something wrong with this boy. He's got power. He's got, he, you know, anything. He kills people just because they just feel like killing them. And they stand up to him and said, uh, we don't have to give you a reason. We're not going to do it. Our God can save you from our hand, but even if he doesn't, <laughs> we will not bend. We will not bow. We will not worship your God. Now this phrase, I have preached on this many, many, many times. It's been a long time since I preached it here, but uh, this phrase in verse 18, I believe, is one of the most powerful, powerful concepts of faith in the Bible. You begin to understand, and you get a grip, a grasp of those lines in verse 18. One, two, three, four, five, six. Six words. But even if he does not, I'm telling you, it'll change your life. It will help you get to a place of faith that most people never get to. I'll tell you why. Because you have to be able to shut off fear if you're going to have faith. If you cannot shut off fear, you can pray, you can quote the Bible, you can cry, you can weep, moan, and groan. You can have people pour a bucket of oil on your head, even from the Holy Land. You can have the best evangelists in the world dance around you and lay hands on you. But if you can't shut off fear, you will get jack squat when it comes to a miracle. People think that it is trouble that gets God's attention. It is not. People think, well, if I just cry loud, I cried unto the Lord and he heard me. Yes, David talks about that, but he wasn't in a place of fear. Just crying will not get you your miracle. If crying and moaning and groaning and wailing would get you your miracle, our city would be filled with miracles. Why? Because when everything goes wrong, people cry, wail, freak, and moan and groan. That doesn't do it. Hebrews 
The 11th chapter says this. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Um, let me remind you of, of this uh, account of Jesus. Jesus was uh, walking along. And the Bible says he's going through a multitude of people. Now, I don't know how many multitude is. But it's a whole bunch of people. And the Bible, we know thousands of people. So it's got to be a multitude. They are all grabbing at him. Reaching at him. Trying to get his attention. Throngs of people. And he's pushing through like a rock star. At the Grammys, man. Trying to get through the big crowd of people. Everybody has screaming out, touching Jesus. Trying. And the Bible tells us there is this woman. Who has been sick for years. She has gone through every bit of money she has. Going to doctors trying to get well. She's broke. She's destitute. She has no hope. She has nothing. And she's still sick. And she reasons to herself. If I can just touch the hem of his garment. I will be healed. She's filled with faith, you see. So here Jesus is plowing through this throng of people and this woman that nobody knows about. She hasn't said anything to anybody. But she just is reaching. She's fighting through. And as he passes, she gets her fingers on just a piece of his robe. And the Bible says immediately, the power of God went out of Jesus, zapped this woman, and completely healed her. And what's amazing is Jesus is going, and all of a sudden he goes, who touched me? And his disciples said, hello. <laughs> Everybody's touching you. What do you mean, who's touching you? He goes, no, 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 no. Somebody touched me. And he turned. And here's this woman. And he tells her not to be afraid. And speaks great things over her because her faith has made her whole. You see, it is faith that gets God's attention. Lots of people scream. Lots of people cry. Lots of people panic. Oh my goodness, you've seen it. You know lots of people who do it. You probably do it yourself. I'm telling you, it's not that God is cold-hearted. But that's not what gets his attention. What gets his attention is faith. And you cannot get to faith if you don't learn how to shut off the fear. And the way you shut off the fear is you look at the very thing you're scared to death that will happen. And you say, I don't care. I don't care. You see, if you've got cancer and you are terrified of dying and all you can see is your children will grow up without you and, and your husband will be, well, who forget about him. But you know, and, and you're all, and you're just worried about what's going to happen. And you're so fearful of that. And you're praying desperately for a miracle. I'm telling you, you've got to shut it off. You've got to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who said, our God is able 
to deliver us. Okay, we know God can. He says, we believe God will deliver us. It's a statement of faith. But then they look fear straight in the eye and says, even if he doesn't, we will not bend. We will not bow. We will not be afraid of you. Next Wednesday, we'll take a look at what happens. And I'm going to take my time with this one. I'm going to preach this one. This is preaching material right here, I'm telling you. So anyway, there you go.